The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. My name is Penny, and uh, I'm the senior pastor here. And friends, it is good to be with you. Uh, this is the third Sunday in the season of Advent. And during this season, we have been looking at how Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. And then next week, we'll look at how he is the new man, uh, the new man. Um, but, but over the last number of weeks, we've, we've heard how Jesus is our prophet. He is the one who comes and he speaks to us the word of God. And last week, we heard how he is our priest, the one who offers not just a sacrifice, but the sacrifice himself as the atonement for sin. He is the one who redeems us. And this morning, we now turn our attention to the office of king, how Jesus is our king. And to do this, we're going to look at an Old Testament passage, Deuteronomy 17. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Deuteronomy 17. Uh, it's the fifth book of the Bible, so it's easy to find. Uh, it's right there near the front. Um, and we'll also be looking at Philippians chapter 2. We'll project both passages on the screen in just a moment. But one of the reasons, well, well not one, uh, the reason why we're looking at Deuteronomy 17 is because uh, when you're considering the, the life of the king and you're looking for, uh, to a passage that's going to inform us, what the king was supposed to do and how he was supposed to function, who he was supposed to be, Deuteronomy 17 is the passage because it is the only passage in all of scripture that gives us a law for the king. And so if we want to know what the king, how he was supposed to behave, this is where we turn. And so that's why we're starting there this morning in verse 14. So follow along. Deuteronomy 17 verse 14 says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. And now turning ahead to Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, the Apostle Paul writes, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask simply that as we come to it that you would help us open our eyes, lead us in your way, help us to see the beauty of your truth, help us to be in awe at your majesty. Father, help us to see where it is that we need to orient our lives so that we would live in submission to you, our God and our King. We pray in your name. Amen. Now, I'm fairly confident that every single child, or maybe not every child, but, but almost every single child, as they grow, as, as their vocabulary increases, at, at some point or another, they're going to look at their mom or dad with anger in their eyes and fury in their voice and declare, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> right? Oftentimes we hear this from a toddler, maybe, right? As it's time for a uh, bath or they're resisting going to bed. And, and as we're actually carrying them up the stairs and down the hall to the bath or to bed, and they declare very unironically to them, you are not the boss of me. This is what children do, right? Kids, you've said it. Parents, you've heard them say it. And kids, if, if you've said it recently, don't worry, you're in good company because over time, that phrase, you're not the boss of me, it actually changes, right? The, the toddler changes to an adolescent, to a teenager, to a young adult who, instead of saying you're not the boss of me, they now say, don't tell me what to do, right? I've said those words. <laughs> uh, you've said them. Well, don't worry, uh, uh, adolescents, don't worry, teenagers, because uh, those words actually change over time as well, because this isn't just a problem for the toddler. It's not just a problem for a teenager. It's a problem for adults, right? This resistance to authority, this uh, pushing back against uh, those who might have power over us, this desire for autonomy, regardless of age or stage, we all struggle with it. We bristle against authority, and so now as adults, what we say is we don't say you're not the boss of me. We say things like, well, it's a free country, and I can say whatever I want, and don't tread on me, and no one can tell me what to do. We laugh at the child who says you're not the boss of me, but, but in reality, that's what our heart is saying. Right? This is a problem not just for adults or for children or for teenagers. It's a problem for humanity. It's a problem that we all experience. That regardless of age, we all bristle against authority. And we want to have that autonomy. And we do this because we think that we, we can trust ourselves to look out for what's best for ourselves. Right? We think what's best for ourselves. Like, no one can tell me what to do, and no one should tell me how I should live my life or how I should live with my family. I am my own authority. So how's that go? I mean, that doesn't go too well for us, does it? I mean, what happens when a child is devoid of all authority? What happens when we're left to ourselves? I mean, consider Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve, they were living in perfect harmony with one another and with God and with creation. 
They were living in perfect harmony when they were under God's authority. But as soon as they started to push against that, right, they saw the fruit and they, it was desirous for making one wise and they reached out and they took it and they bit from it. The very fruit God said, do not eat. As soon as they lived as an authority unto themselves, what happened? Pain and separation and death. It invaded our world and it invaded their lives. And we're experiencing that ourselves, right? Autonomy and ourselves as authority. You see, it may sound like freedom, but in reality, it's a slave that leads to ruin. See, what we need isn't autonomy. What we need isn't ourselves to be our own authority. What we need is an authority over us. Now, I recognize that that could be a scary proposition, right? That, that power corrupts and ultimate power corrupts ultimately, right? Lord Acton said that, right? That, that, might, uh, that might be a scary proposition for us, but I'm not talking about just any kind of authority. We don't, we don't just need any kind of authority or, or any kind of power over us. What we need is a particular kind. What we need is a king. That's what we need. And that's what Deuteronomy 17 is describing. It's describing the king that we need. Now, the context of Deuteronomy, remember, is that God's people are moving into the land. And as they move into the land, they're going to be surrounded by these nations and peoples that live and act and think and believe different things than the people of God. And as they're surrounded by them, they're going to be tempted to want to adopt those practices and those beliefs. And so God warns them about this. And he says to them, when you look at all the nations, right, when you look at how they're living, what you're going to see is that, they, is that they have a king. And you're going to want a king for yourself. Now, ultimately, this isn't a problem. First Samuel, the people are going to ask for a king. And the, pro the desire for a king isn't actually a problem in of itself. The problem is that they desire a king who's like all the other nations, they're wanting a king who rules like the kings of the nations. That's the problem. And so in Deuteronomy 17, God instructs them what this king over Israel should be like. What is the king that they need? And the king is one who's going to live before the people and live under God's authority. You see, that's one way in which the king is very different than the kings of the world. Because the king in Israel is to live under God's authority. We see it in verse 15. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. God chooses the king. Not the people. They don't have like an election. They don't have debates. They don't have discussion. The king himself doesn't anoint himself king. No, God chooses the king. He goes on in verses 16 and 17. He must not acquire many horses. He shall not acquire many wives, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. All right, so no horses, no wives, no gold. Okay, why, why these things? Well, what, what God is instructing us about is that, that he wants the king to be dependent upon him. And all of these things had, had a dynamic of international relations. You see, um, uh, the, the horses in the ancient Near East, they were like our version of tanks. Though those militaries and those nations who had a great deal of, of horses, they would often win in a military battle. And so he's saying, don't, don't have lots of horses. Don't trust in your military. 
He then goes on and says, don't have, uh, don't have many wives. Now, there's a moral and ethical demand about this, right? Because uh, the, the picture we're given in the scriptures, the commands are, are for monogamy, one man and one woman forever, not polygamy. So there is a moral dimension, but it's actually more than that because in the ancient Near East, the way in which they uh, formed treaties and alliances was through marriage, right? You're about to go to war with uh, the, the country down the, you know, down the river from you. And the way that we can stop this war from happening is, well, the king just marries the, the other king's daughter. And so you just start accumulating wives with all these different women from all these different places so that you can have alliances, Don't acquire for yourself great wealth, because then you can buy power. You see, in all of these instances, horses, which are armies, wives, which are treaties, uh, uh, wealth, which is power, in all these instances, what God is calling the king to do is to trust him. Not to trust in his power, not to trust in alliances, not to trust in his might. Trust in God. And this is capped off when we're told that the king is to keep God's law and read it and follow it and fear the Lord. So you see, when the king lived this way, when he lived in dependence upon God, when he was under his authority, when he was trusting in the Lord, he was actually functioning as the model Israelite. This is what Israel was to look like. So if you're just, you know, the regular Israelite living in the land and you wanted to know what faithfulness looked like, you could look to the king. He was the one dependent upon God. He's the one who loved God's law. He's the one who feared the Lord. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But there's a problem. The problem is that no king of Israel did this. They didn't do it well or completely. Right? I mean, we... If you've read through the historical books and heard the history of Israel, in many ways, it is the story of uh, failing kings, of Israelite kings not living up to this law, right? They lost the law, and they acquired wealth, and, and they took wives, and even David, the greatest king of them all, he failed. You see, the king that we need actually isn't the king of the Old Testament, The king that we need is the king who would come. The king that we need is Jesus. Because in all the ways that the Old Testament kings failed, Jesus was faithful. He came in the line of David. He entrusted his life to his father, right? He actually said, I can't do anything except for what the father tells me. He prayed, not my will be done, but your will be done. Jesus, who was there when the law was written, he kept it completely. He is the king that we need. He's the king that we need, and he is the king who came in humility. That's what the first half of Philippians tells us. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Christ the king is the king who is humble. He is humble. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Now, at first sounding, that that might sound like Jesus when he took on flesh, when he was born. He set aside his divinity. 
That's my, maybe what it sounds like, right? Like that he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Like he set aside his divinity. But that's not what Paul's saying. We know from uh, the scriptures as a whole that Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. Two natures in one person, psychosemantically united together. So that's not what Paul's talking about here. No, what he's talking about when he uses this language of grasped, that, that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, is that we're to understand, as the theologian D.A. Carson put it, as something to be employed for his own advantage. And so what Paul is telling us is that when Jesus took on flesh, when he became a man and humbled himself, he didn't use his power and authority, which was rightfully his, for his own advantage. Instead, he humbled himself and used his power and authority for our advantage. For us, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You hear that? Christ the King used his authority and power and kingship for you. He died for you and for me. Now think about how different that is than worldly authority. Think about how different that is than, than worldly leadership and power. Right? I mean, Jesus himself in, Ma in Mark chapter 10 said, those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And that sounds about right, doesn't it? We look at leaders in our world, we look at power, we look at authority, and isn't, doesn't it seem like that's what they do, right? They lord it over those that they rule, and, and they're using their power and authority to just build for themselves greater power and authority. I mean, that's what it seems like is happening, isn't it? But Jesus goes on. Right after that, he says, But the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our great king used power and authority and his very life for us. Not for himself, but for us. I have to tell you, that, that's a king I can follow. Right? Like, that's a king that I want to submit my life to. Like, uh, we, we should have no problem, every one of us, being able to say, God save the king when it's that kind of king. Right? To live under that kind of authority? Because he's not just any kind of a king, right? He's not a despot. He's not a tyrant. He's benevolent and gracious. He's merciful and kind. That is the king that we submit to. That is the king that we need, and that is the king who has come in humility. But Jesus isn't just the king who has come in humility. He's also the one who's coming in exaltation. Look at the end of our passage in Philippians. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I have to tell you all, of, of the offices, prophet, priest, and king, um, this is the one king that makes me long for Jesus' second coming the most. Now, all of them do, right? Like, I mean, to, for Jesus to come as our prophet and declare his word to us directly, I mean, that, that sounds pretty great. 
or as, his, as our priest to come and to sit and dwell with us, that, that sounds wonderful, but his kingship, that is what makes me long for his coming because when the king comes, so will his rule. And we know that his rule has already come in part, right? That he sits on David's throne. He sits at God's right hand and he rules over all this earth. But, but we also know that his rule is not finished, right? It's not fully acknowledged. And so we long for that day when he will return and he will make all things new. Or as the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, that Jesus executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Isn't that what we long for? That day when all those things that, that are pushing against his rule, those things that are resisting his reign, that they will be no more. And not just the, the things out in the world, but the things in our own hearts, right? And in our own minds. Those ways in which we are trying to live as an authority unto ourselves, where we want to be the king or the queen over our lives, those things will be done away with. Don't we long for that day? That's what we want. A king who is gracious and benevolent in his rule fills the earth. But we know that even now as he rules, like that hasn't come in full. It's what theologians call the already and the not yet, right? We are living in the already of Christ's kingship, but in the not yet of his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. We're living in that in-between time. We're living like in the return of the king, Tolkien's uh, conclusion to the Lord of the Rings. You remember at the end of the Lord of the Rings, Aragorn, who is the, the one who came in the kingly line, he is sitting on the throne and his kingdom is spreading over all of Middle Earth and peace is starting to come. But even as the king is sitting on the great white throne, there is still enemies in distant lands and there is still more work to be done. And in fact, uh, though the Dark Lord has been defeated and the Ring of Power has been destroyed, there, there is still darkness. And the hobbits, they discover this on their way back to the Shire, right? They're returning home, and as they're getting closer to home and they're getting farther away from the, the White Throne, they hear that there's been worse than robbers about. There's dark shapes in the woods, dreadful things that it makes the blood run cold to think of it. It's been very disturbing. Now, Tolkien's speaking about a fictitious world when he describes this. But he could have easily been describing our world, right? I mean, dark shapes, dreadful things, that which is disturbing. We see it in our world and in our lives. And so though the king has come, we need him to come again. We need to come again in exaltation. We need to, him to come again in glory to take the dark shapes and the dreadful things and that which is disturbing and to be done with it. You see, there is still a future reign to come. There is still a day to come when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Christ is the King, when everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth will declare that Jesus is the Lord. And when that day comes, his reign will be consummated. And he'll do away with darkness and death and sickness and sin. They will be no more forever. 
That day is what's promised in Philippians. And it's what's promised in Revelation 21. When the Apostle John is looking forward to that day and he says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. The former things will have passed away. And we will dwell with the king. In his presence there will be no more death. With compassion he will wipe away every tear. And we will delight because we will confess with our very lips that Christ is the king. Y'all, that is the king who came in humility. And that is the king who is coming in exaltation. And he is the king, not just that we need then, but we need now. And so let's pray to that king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have sent Jesus to be our king, to rule and to reign over us. And so we ask that you would help us today in all of our days to live as your loyal subjects, that our lives would be submitted to you and that we would follow you and long for that day when Christ will come and we will dwell with you in glory. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly and make all things new. And we pray all this in your name and God's people said together, Amen.